Welcome to episode 143 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre featuring conversations with actors, directors, playwrights, and more. As I mentioned in my last episode, I'm in St. John, New Brunswick for the Fundy Fringe. I start performances of my play, The Commandment, on Tuesday, August 21st, and I'm super excited to perform this play at a new Fringe. As I travel, uh, St. John now, Halifax next week, I'll be talking to people at the Fringe Festivals I'm at, so look forward to hearing those interviews. Also, on the Saturdays, watch for the Fringe Roundups from both the Fundy and Halifax Fringe Festivals. If you want to drop me a line, you can find Stageworthy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website at StageworthyPodcast.com. If you want to drop me a line, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby, and my website is PhilRickaby.com. My guest is James McClure. His play, Glass Closets, premieres at the Fundy Fringe Festival starting August 21st. gonna just gonna jump right in so uh for the fundy fringe you were doing a, a show that you wrote called glass closets um can you tell me a little bit about about that show yeah so glass closets is a play about uh, a couple uh one is from the city one is from a small town in ontario uh one is out of the closet the other one is closeted So Lance is trying to get his closeted boyfriend, Morgan, to finally come out and, you know, tell his family, you know, who he is. Um, But Morgan keeps refusing to do so. And his explanations get more and more elaborate and ridiculous until we finally find out the real reason. And that's uh, something I want to tease out. Oh, of course. Of course. The real reason. Um, Yeah. And they're both hiding something is the idea. That's why it's glass closets as opposed to mm -hmm. glass closet. Yeah. Mm. I had not heard the the term glass closet before. Is that is that a a common term? I don't think it's too too common. I um I definitely didn't invent it. I stumbled upon it when I was researching um uh gay culture and looking at mm. slang commonly used in uh the subculture and I saw a glass closet and it's uh so it's a term for anyone who is still in the closet but it's just so blatantly obvious that they're not really hiding anything. And uh, yeah, exactly. I thought it was a beautiful term. It's a great metaphor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not just for that, but for anything. Because the more I think about this play, the more I think, you know, a lot of us, I don't want to say all of us, but a lot of us are hiding stuff in plain sight. And we oh, think sure. we're getting away with it. And we're not. I remember when I was a kid, uh, when I was a teenager, I used to smoke and I smoked behind my mom's back. And she once caught me with uh, cigarette wrappers in my pocket. She was like, well, what's this? And I said, oh, my friends were going to litter. So I put them in my pocket. And, uh, and she bought it. And I think it's one of those things where, you know, I want her to believe a lie. She wants to believe the lie. So we just kind of go along with it. Yeah. I mean, did, I mean, as a, as a former smoker, um, I know that, uh, most people who you think don't know, know, cause you don't know how easy it is to smell it. So you probably knew and just didn't want to know. Exactly. Yeah. There's so many things you don't want to know. So that's, that's Morgan's case. Morgan's family very much should know and not like any stereotypical sense, but he keeps inviting this guy Lance to uh, family functions like Easter dinner, marriages, that kind of stuff, weddings. Um, and, and there are so many giveaways in terms of his, his, um, 
his life and his story and the stuff that he's gone through. There's so many tells that they should be picking up on, but they don't. And so Lance is convinced mm-hmm. that they're just, you know, like my mom with the cigarette packages. They don't want to believe it, even though it's blatantly obvious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, where did the inspiration from, from, for this show come from? The inspiration is actually terrible. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> actually, before you get started, I think that, that, that sometimes that's the best inspiration is something that's, that's really terrible. Yeah. I remember, um, so I worked on this with a dramaturge and, uh, I told him where the idea came from and I definitely got this sense that he was like, mm, not impressed. Doesn't sound, it's not a good origin story. So I'll tell you why I decided to write it after I tell you the origin story. But the origin story is just, okay. uh, for my creative process, I just like to like, let my mind run. And then when something funny comes along, I'll grab it and tease it out and see where it goes. So honestly, the idea for this play came when I was in my kitchen, I was eating some Cheetos and I thought it would be really funny if someone got something, I'm just going to say something intimate stuck in another person's zipper and that slapstick situation where they're caught in Mm. someone else's zipper. How do you handle that? And so I started to think, well, what would the, how would they get in that situation? What is a plausible scenario? And it all sort of came from that. So it's um, so there's a lot of you know humor in the play. It's not completely slapstick, but it did start as that slapstick mm. thing. So that's the awful origin for it. Uh, the reason I developed it though is because I remember I was growing up in uh, St. Thomas, Ontario, and I had a lot of friends who were gay, but they could never come out in St. Thomas, Ontario because it was so uh, conservative, vehemently heteronormative that it just was not safe for them to come out. So they all came out when they went to London, Ontario, or they went to Toronto, you know, bigger cities and that sort of thing. And I feel it's still very much that way there. And I have a feeling every province has at least a couple small towns, I think, where it's still very not acceptable. So that's why I developed the idea. Hmm. The interesting thing is, and uh, the, the people who, who came out when they went away, I mean, did they just come out to people they know, or did they, once they were moved away, did they come out to their families or... Yeah, their families as well. Some, uh, at least one had come out to his family beforehand. So it was kind of like the family, I think, said, you know, it's probably in your best interest if we can kind of keep this low key until you leave the community because mm. they know what it's like there and they don't want to see anything bad happen. Right. Um, yeah, right. which is just, you know, so many layers of awful, you know, where we're totally. kind of complicit. but. You know, it's it's with good intentions that they try to hide these secrets. Yeah. Um, and I don't really know. I was so they were friends of mine. Um, They're Facebook friends of mine. If I saw them on the street, we definitely recognize each other. But I wasn't actually there for like their coming out or anything. So I don't know if it was like a big thing where they kind of like told everyone. And this is before Facebook when they when they mm. came out too. So they couldn't make it that kind of event. But it was definitely one of those glass closet moments where it's like, yeah we all kind of figured right but yeah 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 some people did it and the people who didn't were mad like i remember one guy and it was awkward because again it's another one of those types of friends like it's not a real friend but it's someone i see in high school quite a bit and it's a small town i remember one guy was just angry just irrationally mm. angry over this and i thought wow what a weird thing to get angry about yeah, but in those small towns, I mean, that's in those places where it's it's not an acceptable thing. I mean, anger is a thing that happens. Not to excuse it because it's not excusable, but it's like that's the reaction. And, you know, it's funny because I think that um, that kind of anger often is based in misogyny. Um, because the person who is feeling that anger 
is suddenly angry that somebody that they know might have looked at them in the way that they may look at somebody that they are interested in. Yeah, I hear that. Yeah, yeah, I definitely think that's common. And uh, this one person in particular that I'm thinking of, he was a strange case because it was at a party when he found out. Mm -hmm. And he said, Mm. I can't believe that guy's gay. When people used to pick on him, I stuck up for him and told him, no, he's not gay and stuff like that. So he felt weirdly betrayed that he, as far as he saw, went to bat for this guy. And then what he went to bat for turned out to be false. So he, you know, under mm. a false pretense, stuck up for him. So it's it's another one of those like sticky situations where it's like he did the right thing defending this guy, but he did it for all the wrong reasons. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And that's how messed up so you told- small town can get. Yeah. Well, yeah. So you told me about the, the, the quote unquote horrible uh, origin of this play Glass Closets. But what is it that that stood out for you? about this scenario that made it grow into something more than just a, a slapstick moment? Uh, it's definitely like looking at the emotional development of the character. So we go in and we are told that one character is living a lie, but then we find out every character on stage is living a lie. And I like when you can have that kind of thematic unity, different shades of the same theme. And I think it's a theme that resonates with people because if we're not living a lie to some extent, then we know people who are, people who are trying to fool us or fool themselves or fool everyone. Um, So I was really interested in that development. And then there's another twist. So we find out what finally makes Morgan come out. But then there's another twist with his boyfriend, Lance, and his boyfriend, Lance, is hiding something that's even Mm. more devastating than uh, than Morgan's uh, revelation yeah so that's what i really liked i like playing with that and the fun thing about those sorts of themes is that you can't just you don't want to be like m night Shyamalan and just like have a huge twist at the end you don't see coming so i had to tease it out and that's really it's fun but it's aggravating to tease it out just enough so that the audience doesn't throw up their hands and think well you've just completely changed the characters right well, that's the tricky yeah. thing. I mean, that's the that's the, the the thing that you don't want is the M Night Shyamalan. Exactly. Oh, for fuck's sake, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, James, what is your uh, theater origin story? As a as a kid who grew up in St. Thomas and now finds himself uh, out east, what 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 drew you to theater? Um. When I was a kid, we were always doing plays at school. I did plays at Beavers. Um, My grandfather was very interested in drama. My grandma was interested in drama. I grew up with them uh, living in their house in Toronto for the first 10 years before moving to St. Thomas. So there's always this kind of theater around. And I remember some of my favorite field trips were when we would get to go out and see shows. So I was always very, um, very much immersed in theater and loved it and liked doing acting at first. Uh, but then when I turned about 12 or 13, I started to get really interested in writing. And so that's more of my thing now. Um, throughout high school, did community theater and whatnot, but didn't start writing plays until I was in undergrad at Western. And then started doing some one-act festivals and building up a bit of a resume that way. Went on to do a doctoral degree at U Ottawa, studied Shakespeare, that sort of thing. So theater's been kind of like a through line, I would say. You know, despite living in four different provinces and numerous mm. different cities, theater is one of those things that's been consistent for me. So it's very much a place that feels like home. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it that drew you to writing? Ah, oh, that's a really good question. You know, I think, I think it's just 
having that wandering mind, you know, when I was young, I would just do really weird stuff without any idea of like why I was doing it or where it was going. So I remember when I was like, I think it was 11 or 12 and my sister found, she wanted to record something on a blank tape. So yeah, this is dating myself, but yeah, she was listening to the radio and she wanted to, to make a tape of something. And so I lent her one of mine and she listened to it and I had been doing radio shows for fun with fictional characters. And it was just something I did like for fun, just in the off time. And, uh, and then she started saying, well, you should like do something with that. You should write scripts or something. So I thought, oh yeah, that'd be fun. But I think if like, if that had never happened or if no one had noticed me writing, I think I would just be like in a room somewhere writing just for myself, just cause it's kind of, it's an obsession, you know, just can't hmm. not do it, I guess. Well, it's interesting because I know, you know, for me as a, as a writer, um, I think some of the earliest things that I wrote were plays. Um, and like when I was a kid and that sort of like led to, to my default when I'm think when I'm having an idea is this is a play. Mm-hmm. And if, if it's not, I find out a little later after I've tried to make it into a play. Um, do you, was writing like for, for, for theater your thing or did you, did you write like short stories and other things like that? Oh, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. All kinds of stuff. Um, started with short stories actually, because when I was in the eighth grade, I got, you know, heavy into Edgar Allan Poe, Stephen King, that kind of stuff. So horror short stories were just great for that mindset back then. Didn't write my first play until I was in a drama class. Wrote lots of sketches before then and did improv and stuff like that. But the idea of like having something long enough to be a play was really Mm. tough to figure out. Um, And now looking back, it's funny because I can kind of figure out where I think something should sit. So I still get lots of ideas. But like you said, you know, you have one idea and you're like, well, that's, you know, that's definitely a play. That's a short story. That's a novel. Mm. Um, in my plays, they started off very much like long kind of sketches. So they were very farcical, very high concept, very silly. Um, and then I took a break actually when I started doing the PhD, cause that is very time consuming. Mm. And when I came back, I just wanted more depth. So I stopped doing the farces and then started focusing more on plays that I find really funny. I hope other people find them very funny. Um, but uh, but try to have a little bit more character development, have those arcs, have those, uh, you know, moments of emotional, raw, emotional uh, mm. realization and um, and characters that are willing to really see themselves uh, for mm. a moment on stage. And that's very consistent with this play and the one that I did for Fundy Fringe last year, faking it. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah, where characters go through a ridiculous situation, but they come out of it realizing more about who they are and have a clearer sense of what they want from life and how they're going to get it. I'm curious about your, you're saying that you, you know, you wrote sketches initially and then some of your longer plays were longer sketches. What was your exposure to sketch? What was it that, that, that started you writing along the lines of sketch? Oh, watching way too much uh, Saturday night live and kids in the hall. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. My mom let me stay up late on Saturday so I could watch the latest, Mm -hmm. uh, SNL and then watching kids in the hall back when it was still on. I can't remember. I think it was earlier. Right. In the night. Probably should have been later in the night. Cause some of the stuff that the kids were doing was just, it probably yeah. should have been on later, but you know, the CBC is great for busting rules. Exactly. Like that. Yeah. So I would say, and then uh, later on 
because I would, you know, I, I kind of get obsessed. If anything I like, I have to know everything about it. You know, I got to read. Mm. So Wikipedia is great because it means I don't have to, you know, uh, spend as much time at the library trying to find out about these people. But I'd hear like people on SNL and kids in the hall talking about Monty Python. So I'd be like, oh, I got to check that mm. out. And, you know, developing things based on that. But yeah, I would say those were the two first moments. I remember really clearly the first time I saw Saturday Night Live. I was in a going to a wedding in Minden, Ontario. It was this little crappy motel that we were staying at, and there was nothing but uh, bugs in the TV. So when crushing bugs got boring, I put on the TV, and there's no parents around because they were all drunk at the wedding. And so I thought, well, mm. I just don't have to go to sleep. And they had David Hyde Pierce on SNL, and it was one of the seasons where they had Mike Myers and Chris Farley and Chris Rock and you know all of those greats. And, uh, mm. and it was just I like I I can't remember laughing harder uh up to that point in a single night you know it just hurt but it was great i was completely enthralled by it hmm. um in terms of uh like you were saying that you lived in a number of cities um what took you from ontario out to st john new brunswick actually there's a there's a step in between where i went to calgary uh yeah, okay so i went from ottawa ontario to calgary because my partner at the time got a job uh with hockey canada which, you know, you just can't pass up being two hockey fans. No. That was fantastic. So she did that for a couple <laughs> of years, and then she wanted to be a little bit closer to her family in the Maritimes. So the two of us uh, pulled up stakes, moved out here, and then a few months after that, we broke up. And um, and I got work out here, so now I'm happy. But it is funny because St. John is very much a community about roots. Like everyone who is from here has been from here for generations. So it's weird not mm. really having much uh much of an anchor here you know kind of floating and i mean how is that in like in st john being somebody who's from ontario in in st john new brunswick uh is uh like the fact that you haven't been there for generations is that a is that a problem at times or is that just is just a just a way that you have to learn to navigate it is definitely a way that you have to learn to navigate and there's weird little things that pop up i remember the first time i went to shoppers drug mart to pick up a uh, prescription the pharmacist said oh you're that come from away and that's a term i'd never <laughs> heard of before so i was like like is it okay if i'm here like is there like a list of people who are considered transients and I'm going to wake up one night and be thrown in a tramp chair or something like that. <laughs> but no, 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 I found um, like joining the theater community here was really uh, a big deal because it's such uh, you know, it's such a supportive, warm, friendly community uh, and very outgoing. Mm -hmm. And I think it's true what they say about the Maritimes being really friendly, but people have known each other here for so long that it can be really hard to break in to an existing network of friends you know it's kind of like you have people who are like i've been friends with these people since before i could remember so i don't know if i have mm. space to squeeze you in you know um that's how it felt like sometimes until i met the theater community and they were just fantastic took me right in so it's been great since then so the theater community was was really was really opening to and welcoming absolutely yeah very well very warm very welcoming and uh that was about a year in here so the first year was pretty uh lonely at times just because i didn't know mm. anyone you know spend christmas by myself which is misery uh at least from my perspective never yeah. spend christmas by yourself um and yeah i might have moved away and had like a negative impression of the place if i hadn't met up with some of the theater people and then after that, you know, working at Civilized uh, has really helped me break in with more circles around the community. So they're a fantastic bunch. They're great people. But it can, from a newcomer perspective, it can be kind of hard 
to get out there and to break into some social circles. Well, you were the, you said you were there for a year and and like not knowing anybody. So, what is it that that kept you there before you found the theater? Honestly, it is so cheap to live out here. Um, it really <laughs> is. Like you're from Toronto, so when you come out here, you're going to be blown away at what people pay for rent. I was living in Calgary in a basement, paying fourteen twenty five, basement of an old rectory, and it was miserable. And out here, I've got way more. Uh, for my apartment than I did in Calgary. And it's, you know, I got a beautiful harbor mm. view um, and all these amenities close by. It's really walkable. Um, I love the fog through the city. I love the old architecture. Like it's got, it's such a hidden gem. I would say St. John. Like there's so many. I've, I've been there. I've been there quite a few oh, yeah. times. Oh, right actually, yeah. And I really, I really quite, it's one of my favorite places to, to be there. Buildings that I just love. I like, walk around and sort of be like, there's this building that I love and there's this building that I love. Cause they're just like, so they have a lot of character, mm-hmm. you know, I like to feel the age of things. Um, and so I like, I like to feel old things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and there's plenty of that. And, and I, I, I the first time I went to St. John uptown was, uh, I think a dead thing. And this was a number of years mm-hmm. ago. Um, and as I've been going back, because I have friends out there, as I've been going back, I've seen uh, Uptown St. John sort of revitalizing itself. And it was back last May for a wedding. And it was almost a completely different place. Um, sure, there were still a few buildings that were unoccupied, but there's like all these great restaurants that are opening mm-hmm. up and all these all this stuff going on. So it's like it's like a completely different place than when I first oh, saw yeah. it. Oh yeah, and it's like, I just came here. That first year I was here was like the last year of Uptown being very much dead. And then the year when I started going out and make more friends and that kind of thing is when we got uh, all these new pubs and we got the Barcade and all these new festivals coming in. And now looking back, like it's incredible mm-hmm. to think how much a city can change from 2014 when it was fairly desolate and the nightlife was, you know, it was dismal at times. And now it's just such a vibrant city. But still affordable, which yeah. is you know still very much key. Well, that is key. That is very that is re- pretty awesome. This is going to be my first fringe out east, um, and as a, as somebody who's done the Fundy Fringe before, um, how would you have you done other fringe festivals or just the Fundy? Oh uh, yeah, fringe? London Fringe Festival. I didn't have a show in it, but I went to it quite a bit, and then mm-hmm. Ottawa Fringe Festival. Um, again, didn't have a show in it. It was my Fundy Fringe was the first one that I put a show into. Um, but yeah, I'm familiar with London fringe and Ottawa fringe. How does, how would you characterize, uh, the Fundy fringe? What is your, what is your favorite thing about it? Favorite thing about Fundy fringe is that everything is so central, right? So you don't really have to, you don't at all have to get into a car to drive and some other fringe festivals, things Mm. are a bit more spread out. And because of that, it's harder to see all the shows, but it's also harder to hang out. And I remember, um, so this will be my third fringe and every fringe I've been to, it's almost like when you see the Olympics and you see the Olympic village, that's what it feels like to hang out with the artist afterwards. So you've just finished your show. You mm. all come together. There's lots of night events that people are doing. You kind of congregate and you, you share war stories and victories and defeats <laughs> and that kind of thing. And it's so chill because you rarely mm. get that chance to just sit in a room with fellow, you know, theater practitioners. And just talk about, you know, fun stuff, crazy stuff, um, you know, nightmares and dreams and all those things. 
Uh, so the bonding experience, I think, is is unparalleled by mm-hmm. the other fringe festivals. Yeah. Well, that's really awesome um, because, uh, you know, one of the things that I've often found a different, I mean, some every fringe is different and I've been to a bunch of fringes and been in a bunch of fringes. So I know how different they can all be. Um, but at some of them, um, I find that there aren't enough opportunities for just like hanging out with other artists mm-hmm. um, without the need to feel like you're promoting your show. Uh, I've always felt like in the Toronto Fringe, for example, the Fringe tent or the postscript or whatever they're going to call it next year is um, although it's supposed to be like the beer tent, a place to relax, everybody sort of feels like they're mm-hmm. on and talking about their show and talking up their show and, and that sort of thing. And I've never quite felt like it's a, it's as much of a hangout place as it maybe mm-hmm. should be. No, I hear that. Um, on yeah, the, and uh, that reminds yeah. me of one time in the first, uh, first time I did Fundy Fringe, I was down on the street and I recognized one of the performers from a one person show. So I went up and was like, Hey man, I really like the show. He's like, Oh cool. Hey, check out this button, man. Who do you think wore this button? And he was just looking at this tray and this <laughs> you know, thrift store, all these different buttons. And we sat there and just like wondered what these, you know, bygone events were and these weird group hmm. memberships and stuff like that. And that was super chill because neither one of us were trying to sell anything. We were just, you know, having that nice. kind of moment. Yeah. So I, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. Um, as a as, as somebody who's about to be doing the Fundy Fringe for the first time, I'm always curious about um, flyering at Fundy Fringe um, because it, at the Toronto Fringe, for example, one of the biggest and most important things to do is um, uh, flyering lineups. And yet there are other fringes where people don't really line up. So you don't really flyer the lineup. Um, what is the I mean, what is the what do people do at, at Fundy? Are you flyering lineups? Are you going to the market and flyering? What do you I see a little bit doing? of both? It's really whatever you want to do. Um, I got advice from someone who did a bunch of fringes across the country and she said it's way better to just go around the community and try to strike up a conversation with someone. And if you feel that rapport, then give them the flyer as opposed to doing the lineups and then seeing people just chuck it in the garbage right afterward. So trying to go out there and actually, um, you know, sell the show by selling yourself and getting them interested mm. in you as a person and as an artist and that sort of thing to build that rapport. So that's what I do. And then yeah. like my, my play obviously has like a very strong um, gay theme. So we're going to be doing the we're going to be doing Pride this week. My cast you know, getting mm, out there. Nice. So finding those interested audiences. Um, but no, there'll still yeah. be some people who like, especially after the big tease. Uh, will be outside the door, you know, kind of like a gauntlet of flyers and everyone getting out of the auditorium is going to get a, here you go, here you go, here you go, you know, that sort of thing. Um, I don't know how yeah. they do, but if it works, it works. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I probably will will cast around and see what works for me. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of old school and the flyer in the lineup is a, is a tried and true. Um, and that's worked in other places. Oh, except like in Montreal and Edmonton where nobody lines up. Um <laughs> But it's 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 always interesting to sort of see the 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 culture of of a fringe. Um, there's only one city in Canada where I've ever been told while flyering, "Oh, I'm not going to see your show." Really? Wow! What <laughs> rude place is this? Uh, uh, that was actually the Calgary Fringe, and people basically made their choices and would not be swayed. Um, and like I had people, I had somebody like hand back my flyer and say, oh, save the tree. And I was like, the tree's already fucking dead. It's a flyer. Um, wow. Just, just, you know, you want to be like, listen, this transaction is much easier than you're making it. All you have to do 
is accept the flyer that I'm giving you, hold it in your hand, and once I'm gone, I don't care what you do with it. Yeah. You can throw it out. You can use it as a bookmark. But you don't have to look me in the eye and say, oh, I'm not going to see your show. Yeah. Wow. That, you know, I'm so mixed <laughs> on that. On the one hand, yeah. I mean, dick move. Still unnecessary. On the other hand, though, I'm, I'm intrigued by the fact that they were so passionately not seeing this play. Because I think most people are non-confrontational by default. And that person was just like, I need to make this known that I will never see your play. Like, wow. I think that I think I actually think that there's that there are some people who don't quite and and you know the thing is that at the time I was in Calgary I don't think it had been running very long because the Calgary Fringe had folded several years mm-hmm. earlier and then been restarted by a new group of people so it may have only been a couple of years old um and I think that there were a bunch of people who who were unused to the transaction that occurs in the line and uh may have been just annoyed by the fact that people were talking to them in the line um, whereas at other fringes, people understand this is just mm-hmm. the way it goes. And you know what? If somebody comes up and, and says, can I tell you about your show and you're not into it, you could say, ah, no. And they'll just move on. But you don't have to let them go through their pitch. Yeah, no kidding. No. Yeah. Or, or save the tree, which is mm-hmm. like getting a roast beef sample from Costco and saying, could you glue this back on the cow? I don't think it takes. I know that was like the strangest <laughs> thing to be told was save the tree. I was just like, I don't understand how you can think it's a thing to say. Um, yeah, I, and I mean, what is the what is the hub like at at the Fundy Fringe? Because I, you know, as a as somebody who comes from uh, some other fringes in Toronto, the, the 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 fringe tent or the beer tent can feel a bit like sometimes if you don't have a show or you're not in the in crowd that you're not welcome. And so sometimes it can feel a bit like that, or it's for the artists. Some people feel. And, uh, whereas in Edmonton, the beer tents are very much for the patrons. Artists don't go there except a flyer. There's a dive bar down the road called steel wheels and everybody goes there. Um, so, uh, what is the, the hub you're talking about how the, you know, the camaraderie and the artists, but are you hanging out with artists? Are you hanging out with patrons? What's, what's happening? Uh, a little bit of a mix. If the patrons are already, you know, sort of down with the theater community, then they'll definitely be there. We don't turn away the, uh, mm-hmm. you know, regular patrons who just see like one or two shows a week, but they're probably less likely to come. I don't know. Maybe they'll think it's awkward or something like that, but they would be more than welcome. If they want to like hang out, mm-hmm. check out the events, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, they would definitely be welcome, but you'll see a lot of people who aren't doing shows because they've done, you know, main stage productions with St. John theater company, or they've done some of the studio series or they're with the KB players, you know, lots of people who do theater around here will definitely be hanging out. Some of them will be volunteering and some of them will just be hanging out because Mm. their friends are also in shows or some of the local acts. So you'll definitely, like, I guarantee you'll see a lot of people who aren't actually doing the fringe thing this year and they're totally welcome. Same as like the artists are, you know, more than welcome to like mix and mingle with them as well. So I would say there's definitely that uh, that sense of integration. But I would definitely love to see more of the audience come out. If the audience wants to come out for like the open mm-hmm. mic or for the board games and stuff like that. You know, if we put a hat out so they can chip mm-hmm. in and there's a bar so they can buy some stuff. Mm-hmm. I'd love to see some more um, of the regular public come in so we can get, you know, their feedback and what they think of the fest, what they like, what they don't like, you know mind their brains basically yeah yeah <laughs> find out what it is yeah they you got a market want. right absolutely um, yeah is is uh 
like uh, the you're talking about the the people from other theaters is there a lot of support behind the fringe from uh the theater community oh, at large sure. yeah uh, absolutely out there? yeah yeah, yeah. Mm, um at all different levels yeah i see people from all the different theater groups they come in people from outside of the saint john theater community so people from fredericton people from moncton will come in people from nova scotia will come in people who used to be part of the saint john theater scene that have moved away will sometimes come back that's the great thing about maritimers you know like they never really leave they always are just kind of like away for a bit and then you know, like the tide, they'll come flooding back in for special events like this. <laughs> nice, nice. What is, uh, uh, I mean, you the, the, your play Glass Closets, I see, was developed at the Playwrights Atlantic Resource Center's uh, Playwright Colony. What is that about? So that is an annual event where they choose, um, I think it's between like eight to ten scripts. So they get uh, they get an ad out there letting people know that they're interested in, or that they're they're calling for scripts for the colony. People will submit, um, I don't know what the numbers are from year to year, but last year I believe it was 25, so it was a really good uh, representation. From that list, they picked 10 that they wanted to work on. So those 10 uh, artists were told that they'd been selected, and then they all got paired up with uh, Dramaturgs. So my Dramaturg had two other people, uh, so the three of us were working with him on different shows over a two-week period. Yeah, hmm. so we're staying. And were you were you were you staying yeah. out there? Yeah, so it was out in Sackville, yeah. New Brunswick. Have you ever been to Sackville? Uh, no, oh, I have not. An experience. It's it's very small, <laughs> and I like to walk around, so I walked every inch of Sackville. Um, very small, five thousand people. Very very old, beautiful waterfowl park. Like lots of fun stuff to do, but it's perfect for writing because there's only five thousand people, and. Um, and during the, the cottage season, like it's in May. So um, I don't know if they have it, if they call it cottage season out here, but people are away. So it's a perfect place to mm. because you can walk around, you can see all this interesting scenery. It's almost like being in a Bronte novel because it's very cold and very wet. And uh, and there's very little distraction. So you can go and do your, your chores and stuff like that because you're staying in a residence for two weeks. So you can go get your groceries and then come back and work, 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 work. Um, so yeah, for a retreat, it's a fantastic destination. Uh, what what kind of stuff did you learn while you were at the retreat? Oh. Like, what did you learn about that play? Oh, so much. It was grueling in in some of the best ways, but yeah, it it sucked a lot of the time just because of realizing things that were wrong that I hadn't realized before. So yeah, it was it was tough. There was a lot of tough love, and. Um, when when you say that things were wrong, what kind of what kind of things were, were some wrong? things that were like excruciatingly wrong were realizing that this joke is just inserted into the play as a joke. There's no sense of oh. characters; it's just inserted in there. So the dramaturg was like, mm. "If you want to keep it, that's fine, but you got to recognize that there's nothing to it, right? The only reason this mm. bit of dialogue is in there is because you want to use this joke." So I'm like, "Damn it, yeah, he's right." That is tough love. And I mean, the thing is that, that when that sort of thing happens, often you're really, you really like the joke, you know? Oh, yeah. And it works with the pacing. And it was put in there to also kind of break up uh, a little bit of a talking head situation. But it just doesn't work. And that kind of goes back to a line that uh, a dramaturg, uh, Stephen Massacott, once told me, which is, you know, any writer can delete a bad line. It's not really hard to go through your manuscript, to go through your play and see a line. And be, oh, that doesn't work. Cut it. It's way harder 
to cut a line that's good, but it just doesn't work. So that's that kind of tough love where it's oh. like, I like this line. It's a funny joke, but it's got no place here. Yeah, no, that and that is one of the one of the difficult things is is that's that's the whole kill your darlings mm-hmm. thing that they that they tell you to do. The, and I've heard some people say you find your favorite phrase or your favorite sentence in your work and cut it. Mm-hmm. Just cut it because if it's your favorite, it probably doesn't yeah. belong. You just like it because of because it's a really good line or whatever and just, you know, be brutal. And I've, I've some, you know, revision is when you have to get brutal. And sometimes, you know, that's the hardest thing to do. I, I've, I don't know about you, but I always find revision of a written work, the hardest part. It's not fun. It's not sexy. It's just hard work. And often, you know, you just want to get it done. You just want to get mm-hmm. it done. And that's when you're like, no, but I really like this line. So I'll leave it in. Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah. And that's one of the, the pieces of advice that the dramaturg gave me. He said, rewriting is writing. And I was like, oh, mm. OK. So mm. don't look at it as revision. Look at it as writing. Because I want to get to the next thing. Mm. And sometimes I get annoyed. I'm like, I just want to write again. But if I remind myself, no, this is writing. Like, this is the thing itself. Then I feel a little bit more comfortable. And it's good to know that everyone mm. else goes through it. But yeah, like there's every time, anytime I start a project, I've done that first draft and I always think, yeah, that was the first draft. I nailed it this time. And then I go back and I'm like, nope. You ought to start fixing things. So it's disappointing in the process. Yeah. But I would think that it's like writers talking about writing is like one of the most important things that we should do because we all go through basically the same shit. Mm. Um, but it comes down to if it, you know, we all think that we're alone in it. And so, you know, we're all having the same problems with revision. We all think our first draft is brilliant. And then we look at it a couple of days later and go, Oh, this is garbage. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like, I used to stop like in the middle. Cause I would start to realize that it wasn't great. And, you know, the most important thing I ever learned was, was that, no, that's the job of the first draft. Mm-hmm. It's not supposed, it doesn't have to be good. It just has yeah, to be done. Absolutely. Yeah. Because you can revise and that's, a bad draft. You can't yes. revise nothing, right? So you got to get that's, that. That's absolutely mm-hmm. right. That's absolutely right. And that was actually a hard lesson to learn because for some reason I had it in my head many years ago that if it didn't come out perfect, it just wasn't worth yeah. working on. And that I think is somewhat sort fetishized of the... in our culture. Like you go mm. back to the first folio of Shakespeare and you got Hemingges and Condell, two people who were on, you know, basically the board of directors of Shakespeare's playing company. And they write that he never mm. blotted a word, like everything came perfect from his head. You see the movie and the play Amadeus and they talk about how Mozart's mm. sheet music has no corrections. So we kind of fetishize that yeah. idea. It's very romantic, you know, in the words worthy and sense of, you know, the perfect art, pure art being just unfiltered right from the writer's mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in reality, yeah. it is a grueling, grueling, grueling process. Absolutely. I would actually say that every writer needs to read uh, of any book. I think that's the most realistic or one of the most realistic is Stephen King's on writing. Oh yeah. Because he talks very frankly about the revision process and rewriting and drafts and things like that. And this is this from one of the most prolific mm-hmm. novelists of of our generation, uh, uh, a man who's written more. And to find out that no, he goes through all of this too. He 
you know, and he talks very frankly about writer's block and all mm-hmm. that stuff. And so it's sort of always good to, to hear, like, if if that guy goes through this stuff, I think we're all okay. Oh, yeah. That's like that moment when uh, it reminds me of the Greek tragedy where Heracles is dying and he's like, well, or it might be the other way around. I think Achilles, no, Heracles is dying. And he's like, well, even Achilles, the best soldier ever had to face death so I can do it too. Right. There's the same sort of thing that even mm. if the great authors of, you know, there's no one, I don't, I don't think anyone in the 20th century is more prolific than Stephen King. I think he might top no. the list. Yeah. So if it's hard for him, it's hard for all of us. Like I love that being able to look at yeah, them as human yeah. beings. And, um, um, I got to check that out. I've seen like the buzz or the mental floss, like 10 great quotes from on writing, but I haven't actually mm-hmm. read the whole thing. I check that out sometime. It's interesting because it, it is kind of a, a mix of biography or autobiography and sort of writing mm-hmm. manual. It sort of covers both. And I know people who were like, they they read it and they were like, oh, I kind of stopped that they got to the biography stuff after the biography stuff was done because the, the just the writing stuff was boring. I was like, no, the biography stuff was fine. But God, that all the stuff he wrote about writing, that was the real. Oh, meat. yeah. Well, that's what we want to know, right? Like, what's the secret? That's what everyone wants to know. Anytime I've been to like a panel or something like that, first question is always, do you work for a living? Or is writing your thing? We want to know. And if the answer is you write for a living, then we want to know what the secret is. But there is no secret. There's only advice, mm. right? Any writer I've ever talked to who's independently no. doing it has never been able to tell me what the secret is because you just, you work it, you know, and it works out or it doesn't work out. But they can give you lots of great advice. So yeah, I want to check that out for those gems. Those things. Yeah, absolutely. If I didn't have, if that dramaturg hadn't told me that rewriting is writing, um, if Clyde Ray, who's a local poet in St. John, he once told me that you have to fall in love with the process, that defines success. If you can find a way to love the process, you'll be fine. Um, And, Mm. you know, Stephen Mascot telling me that you've got to, you know, a good writer can cut make that tough decision of cutting a good line that just doesn't belong. If it weren't for those gems, I might've, you know, either given up or just been self-indulgent, which in some ways is, is worse than giving up. Right. Cause you're not. Improving. <laughs> true. True. So, um, you know, Fundy Fringe is just a, a couple, a couple weeks away uh, as we record this. And I'm, I'm curious, what is it that you are, looking forward to learning when an audience first sees this. I'm really interested in some of the stuff that I disagreed with, uh, with Don Hanna about. So Don Hanna was the dramaturg that I worked with and we, the script is just so much better than when it came in. So I'm indebted to him for that, for really helping me make it something that was just above and beyond what was on paper when I got there. But it wasn't easy because I, I, you know, fight for everything that's in it and some things i did change because i I got convinced that he was right so it's like yep no you're totally right that's gotta be different that's way different i think i changed 90 percent of the material so i'm really wondering about that 10 percent. i gotta go in there as impartially Mm. as possible and think based Mm. on this audience reaction was he right you know should i get rid of that extra stuff you know, was, mm-hmm. should I look at this as something that's close to being that finished product that I want to, you know, stage again and again, or is it still very much a preliminary draft? So it'll be interesting. Hmm. That is interesting. Also, that it, isn't it great that there is a thing like Fringe that lets you find that out? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. I think writers, because we do think about things so damn much that sometimes you just need an audience in there who'd be like, oh, no, it's fine. It's fun. You know, they don't care. 
Well, you'll never actually know until an audience reacts to it. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And it was funny when we were doing The Colony, we, for the second week of The Colony, we brought in um, actors. So uh, union actors came in and uh, read our scripts. And I remember talking to one of them about my play. And I was like, I've cut a bunch of stuff. And I'm a little bit worried about cutting more. And he said, hey, no audience has ever complained about a play being too short. That is an excellent point. <laughs> yeah. No one's like, I really wanted to sit in that auditorium for an extra hour. No, that is so true. <laughs> that is so true. Well, James, I want to thank you for, for talking with me today. It's been a lot of fun. And uh, I will see you in St. John. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, shoot me an email when you're in town, man. Love to go out, grab a beer with you, help you get situated. This has been a Homebody Productions production.